1962, the night before Rosh Hashanah, the night going into the eve of Rosh Hashanah, let's call it, the Rebbe did for the first time what he would later begin to do annually, which is to host a Fabrengen, to set the tone for the new year. Starting from 1972, he did this yearly. But 10 years earlier, 1962, was a one-off. He called a surprise for bringing just the night before Rosh Hashanah. And at this Fabrengen, a group of guests that had come from Israel to visit for that Tishrei, for the whole month of the holidays, were students in the Kfar Chabad Vocational School. One of the things the Rebbe did pursuant to his father-in-law's directive was right after the establishment of the State of Israel was to make a Chabad community called Kfar Chabad. And uh, he wanted especially that it should service all levels of the Jewish community, not only the observant, but also those that are not so observant or not so learned. And he had Chabad establish a vocational school where they would teach trade, woodworking, artistry, and different types of things. And so in 1962, a group of these students put together a lectern, a stender, for the Rebbe to daven with. And they brought it with them to Israel and they presented it at the Fabrengen. There's actually pictures of this. And the Rebbe used it for the next six years. He would use that lectern at his place every day to daven. And right after receiving that lectern, the Rebbe spoke a talk. And he related a story about a lectern from the first Chabad Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. It was right after Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, one of the two. And the Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, was having a conversation with his son, who would later become the second Rebbe of Chabad, Rabbi Dov Ber. And he said, Beryl, he would call him Beryl, he said, Beryl, mitvas hastu gedavent. Yesterday was Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. What did you pray with? Meaning, which Kabbalistic meditations did you pray with on this holiday? So the Mittler Rebbe said, Father, I meditated on the concept of the Chol Koma Lefanecha Tishtachaveh. That's a line that we say every Shabbat morning in the Nishmat Kol Chai prayer. It says, every standing upright being bows before you. And in Kabbalah, it's explained that every standing being is a reference to every level of spiritual realms that it could possibly be, all the way to what's called Adam Kadmon, the primordial man. Every level is completely uh, subservient to God. That's the meditation that the Mittal Rebbe davened with on Rosh Hashanah. But the Mittal Rebbe was no fool. He knew if his father is asking him a question, he needs to find something out. So he said, Ta, what did you daven with? This holiday, what was your meditation? So the Alter Rebbe said, I daven with the lectern. I daven with my shtender. And the Rebbe spoke a whole sicha, expounding on the difference between the two meditations. What does it mean to meditate on the fact that everything bows to God or to meditate on the shtender? On different levels the Rebbe spoke of, but for tonight's purposes, one of the takeaways the Rebbe said was that the Mittler Rebbe, the second Rebbe, in order for him to have God apparent in his prayer, he had to import it. He had to contemplate on the cosmos, on the realms outside the universe the godliness that's without, the infinite, the incredible, and kind of bring that in to this world, to his physical consciousness, to his present state. 
He had to find God on the outside and bring it in. But the Alter Rebbe, who was the Rebbe at the time, was trying to teach his son, what you need to do is see God in creation. For God to be present in your prayer, you don't have to bring him from somewhere outside. I could daven with the shtender, the wood, the inanimate wood. I can see the godliness inside it. And for me, that's enough to inspire a connection and a relationship with God. Last week, we learned chapter three of the second book of the Tanya. And as I wrote on the chat, my audio file was corrupted. I wasn't able to post it properly. So those that didn't get a chance to hear it, uh, hopefully later this week, I'll be able to post it. We can hear the whole, the entire thing. But just for segue purposes, uncharacteristically, the Alter Rebbe closed last week's chapter with a cliffhanger. Typically, questions are always answered in the same chapter. Here, the Alter Rebbe closed the chapter with a question. And the question was really a buildup of the first three chapters of this book, which is, Hashem created the world, yesh me'ayin, something from nothing, ex nihilo. Ex nihilo, as the Baal Shem Tov teaches it, requires perpetual maintenance. If you're bringing forth radical quantum change, you have to keep it going every second, otherwise everything reverts to its default state, which is, in the case of the world, not to exist at all. More so, the Alter Rebbe said last week's chapter, because we were brought forth from within God, it's not just like any quantum change that we can create. Right? We have a stone, and you throw it up, you've created a quantum change defying gravity, but the stone exists outside of you, elevation and ascension exists outside of you. These are not new things. You've just created a fusion that goes against the rules of nature. But with the world, in the case of the entirety of creation, we came forth from within God himself. There was nothing in the past. So it puts us on a different level of quantum change. It's the level which we never leave the source. Last week there was a little metaphor about sunlight in relationship to the sun. When sunlight is outside the sun, that's when we give it the title sunlight. But when it's in the sun, if we could trace the rays back to the sun, we wouldn't call it light, we'd call it sun. Because over there it's subsumed in the entity of the sun. It has no identity for itself. And so in the same way, we're not in existence outside of the sun that Hashem is simply charging consistently. Hashem is like the sun, and we are like the rays of the sun within the sun. We're subsumed constantly in the source, never left Him. And that brought forth the question at the end of the chapter, which is, if we're actually in our source, how do we perceive ourselves as independent egotistical beings? Something which is outside of something else, you can say, oh, you're not able to tell how your existence is dependent on that energy, so you can perceive yourself as your own identity. But if you're within the source, if you've never left, no matter how covered your eyes may be, no matter how uh, numb or not in tune to the truth you might be, the facts remain. You're inside the source. So if you're inside the source, you can never see yourself as yourself. So how is it that we do perceive ourselves as ourselves? And this is the question which the Alter Rebbe closed with. Like I mentioned last week, that story where Hasidim used to not learn philosophy because they didn't want you to go to sleep with a question. And they would say, well, what about this question in the Tanya? How could the Alter Rebbe close the chapter with a question? And they would say, it depends what the question is. If the question questions God's existence, then you don't want to go to sleep with that. But if the question is how I exist, you can go to sleep with that question. That's okay. And what happens in the next couple of chapters, four, five, and six, the Alter Rebbe sets out a very elaborate answer to this question. 
And essentially, the answer is something we've heard about before, the tzimtzum, the divine squeeze. Tzimtzum literally means concealment or contraction or compression. And basically what it is, is the code word for probably the greatest thing that God ever did within the context of creation. God didn't just create a universe. He created a universe that leaves completely no trace of himself. Today we study physics and we understand that nothing happens in the world without leaving a trail. There is no such thing as you didn't leave a mark somewhere. Even if you've been somewhere, certainly if you've done something, there's always a fingerprint. And not just from people, from every particle. From every single organism in this universe is constantly leaving trails of its presence behind. And Hashem, the master creator, has the capacity to hide himself to the extent that atheists could exist. That there should be a world that should say nothing, speak nothing of his presence. Back in book one, we talked about this concept at length, how without analysis, the world does not lend itself to the existence of a creator. It's only the human mind that, that understands that. And even the human mind has to be intellectually honest, and certainly there are people that have denied this concept of a creator. The world, by default, says, I'm completely independent. The cause for that is the tzimtzum, where God both creates and yet hides. That's what allows for this incredible paradox to exist, where we're literally in, inside the sun, we're inside our source, and yet we see others and we see ourselves as a yesh, as an independent existence. That's the mechanism which Hashem used to allow for this phenomenon. Now, the Alter Rebbe in the chapter gives a, um, a Kabbalistic form for this. And one of the great questions that philosophers, Jewish philosophers, studying the Bible, the Torah, would discuss was the concept of God's names. In the Torah, even in Jewish law, Hashem has seven names. Elohim, Yudke Vavke, the Tetragrammaton, Kel, Shakai, Tzvaot, all these different names. And uh, the question is firstly, how does God have a name? You know, certainly not multiple names, but even one name. A name is a definition. How do we say that God, who is completely beyond definition, should have a name that defines him? And essentially what the philosophers began and the Kabbalists really expounded on this is that the truth is no name can capture God's essence. That's why the real way to speak to God is to use just pronouns. You, I, him. When God says anochi, that's God's essence. When we say baruch ata, when we just say you, that's when we're addressing God's essence. When we see in the Torah the word who, he, in reference to God, that's God's essence. Names do not capture his essence. Any names that we find in the Torah is simply a definition of God in the context of his relationship with the world. The, the words for this in the Midrash is, I get names according to my actions. When God relates with the world in certain ways, he gets called Kale, Tzvaot, 
Shaddai, etc. Two of the more famous names are Yudke Vavke, Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God, ineffable name, and Elohim. Literally, what these names mean, um, Yud and a He and a Vav and a He, if you notice in the Torah, they're, they're vowelized um, with certain vowels, but they're not read that way. And that's because, according to the Zohar, those vowels are a little window into God's essence, if you will. But the literal word, Yud He, Vav He, He Vav He means creator, creation, Havaya, Hitavut. And the Yud, grammatically in Hebrew, when a Yud gets added to the beginning of a word, it's, um, it, it denotes something perpetual. Like you say, the verse that the Altar Rebbe brings as an example is Kacha Ya'aseh Iyov. So would Iyov do. Ya'aseh means he would consistently do that. So Yud in front of the Hey Vav Hey means consistent creation. That's the Tetragrammaton. That name means consistent creation. It also has other meanings, by the way. It also has a meaning of Haya God is beyond time. He's past, present, and future all at once. But for this chapter, it's the constant creator. Elohim has the gematria of 86. God's name, Aleph, Lamed, Hey, Yud, Mem, has the same gematria as 86, which kos, cup, which as you mentioned earlier, has to do with that. That's not in tonight's chapter. The other word that has the gematria of 86 is teva, nature. Nature has the numerical value of 86. And this <coughs> prompts the Kabbalistic connection between the name of Elohim and nature, whereas Shem Havaya, the essential name of God, the constant creator name of God, is beyond nature, Elohim is within the confines, within the limitations of nature. Nature, by the way, the word Teva, um, is described with multiple meanings. The word Teva shares the same root as Matbeya, which means mint. It also shares the same root as Tvi'a, to be sunken in. Every day in the Az Yashir, when we recount the story of the splitting of the sea, we say that Egyptians were tub'u bi'amsuf, they were sunken into the, into the uh, Sea of Reeds. And Hasidah says all the translations are inter, interrelated. Nature is something which seems to have been minted with something so predictable to the point that you get sunk into it and you can't see past it. The Baal Shem Tov was known to have said, nature is a series of predictable miracles. The sun rising east and setting west is a miracle. But since we've seen it so many times, so it becomes nature. And so with everything in the world. Teva means something which is so repetitive and has become so ingrained to your sense of consciousness that you think it's godless. Kabbalah says that comes from the name Elohim. In other words, Havaya, Yudke, Vavke, and Elohim work in tandem. The name of God that's beyond nature, consistently creating everything, is what we'll call the truth of reality. And uh, Elohim covers over that truth. There's actually a verse in Tehillim which supports this, which out there have a quote right in the beginning of the chapter. It says, Kishemesh umagen Hashem Elohim. God, our God, uses both names, is a sun and its shield. So the sun, like the globe of the sun, we know if it would be, there'd be no ozone layer or whatever the protective <coughs> shields around it, the world couldn't handle it. It's too hot. 
It needs a sheath to, um, to protect us. So in the same way, the name of God, which is the truth of reality, is too powerful for the world to handle. It needs a cover. It needs a shield. It needs Elohim. The, 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 the name of nature that allows for this perception where a predictable pattern is created and now people can start thinking, oh, yeah, this is how it works. But I thought it means severity. It is severity. It's connected to, the, to God's midah uh, of gvurah because that's what severity is. Kindness would have everything be expansive. And severity withholds and withdraws. It covers over. It allows you to be blinded, essentially, to the, to the, to the truth. So that's the Kabbalistic form for this concept of tzimtzum, where had everything been allowed to proceed as natural, let's call it, we would be in tune to the truth. We would see that everything is within the sun, nothing is outside of God, and we would cease to exist as independent beings. It's only the tzimtzum, it's only the sheath of the sun, it's only the name of Elohim, God reacting to the world in a way where he covers, that uh, allows for this new reality to emerge where people, not only people, but beings perceive themselves as entities. Now, how it works, the Alter Rebbe concedes in the chapter, is beyond understanding. In other words, at the end of the day, it defies the logical principle. If you're within the source, you shouldn't be able to see yourself. Yes, you could say that Simpson happened and God makes a squeeze and a concealment and a covering of the tracks, but still, What's the mechanism? How does it actually work? The author of it says that goes beyond our understanding. And he references something which we're going to really explore in the second half of this book, chapters 7 to 12, on this major theme of the question of does God have a character? And we're going to get to that really, really at length. But the author of it says kind of what you referenced. God has two basic emotional character traits, chesed and gevura. Kindness, giving, bringing things forth, and gevura, withholding, uh, um, contraction. God's midah, God's attribute of kindness brought the world into existence. God's midah of gevura hid his trace from it. The same way nobody can profess to understand how the creation works, nobody can profess to understand how the tzimtzum works. They're both equally godly. Concealment takes the almighty power that creation takes. To do it in the way that God did it, where there's nothing left of Him in the world, is just as crazy, as beyond logic, as the creation itself. So the same way we don't try to explain and rationalize creation, we can't rationalize the tzimtzum. But that is the fact, and we're going to explore this more in chapter 6 about this concept. So that it's the tzimtzum that allows for this egotistical perception. Now from this halfway point of chapter 4, all through chapter 5, there's a segue. And the Alter Rebbe says, I want to delve a little more into the nature of this tzimtzum. And he shares what amounts to a life-changing insight in this concept. 
um, the way I'll frame it is with a story in the Talmud. The Talmud in Tractate Yoma, which is a tractate all about Yom Kippur, relates that... I'll be back in a few minutes. Yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah. Relates that there was a great group of Jewish people called the Anshei Knesset Hagdola, the men of the Great Assembly. They're most famously known for um, putting together our text of the daily prayer. They made a lot of enactments, 120 great men who lived uh, in the time between the first and second temples and throughout the second temple period. Huh? They were not the Sanhedrin. They were a separate group. Some of them were on the Sanhedrin. This was 120 great people. And they were called the Anshei Knesset Hagdola. And the Talmud wants to know, why are they called Hagdola? Why are they the great assembly? What was so great that they did? And the Gemara relates that Moshe Rabbeinu, when he wanted to address God, he gave God four titles. Hakel, Hagadol, Hagibor, Vahanora. The God, the great God, the strong God, the awesome God. In the Torah, when he addresses God, you see those four titles. When the first temple was being destroyed, and Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah the prophet, was witnessing the destruction and the havoc that the Goyim were bringing upon Jerusalem, he said, Ayei Nora Otav, where is God's awesomeness? If God lets this happen to his people, where is his awesomeness? And when he addressed God in the book of Jeremiah, you will see he only uses the words, Hakel, Hagadol, Hagibor. He said, God, I can't address you as Hanora. You're not displaying your awesomeness. How are you letting this Khurban, this destruction happen to Jewish people? Just a couple of decades later, Daniel, Daniel, who was living under the Persian Empire, and saw what they were inflicting to the Jewish people, he said to God, Where is his strength? Where is his might? He lets this happen to his people. I can't address him with that title. And in the book of Daniel, you see that God is called Hakel, Hagadol, and that's it. And the men of the great assembly came forth and said, Adirabah, to the contrary, Hain, Hain, Gvurotav. The concealment, the discipline is his strength. Jeremiah and Daniel, you ask, where is God's awesomeness? Where is God's strength? That's the strength. The fact that he can allow such things to happen in a world that he created and yet make it seem like nature is running itself and it's godless, that is God's strength. And they reinstate it as we have it in our Shmona Esrei, HaKel HaGadol HaGibor Vahanora. And Hasidus explains what this means. What does that mean that the concealment is the strength? Hashem created the world with a tzimtzum. He created the world so that he is totally and wholly ignored. That itself is godly. Who can hide themselves so greatly? No human can do anything and walk away with zero impression left of himself. The fact that there's a world where God is not apparent is an expression of God. It's an alternate expression of God's infinity. The author Rebbe says, classically, people are looking for God. Where are the miracles? Where are the expressions? 
All we see is suffering, all we see is pain, all we see is darkness. That's the expression of God. When you think you're not seeing God, you're seeing Him. Why does it always be bad? Yeah, that's my question too. Because there's no answers on the bad. You don't blame yourself, but only the good you take responsibility for. It's a difficult question, but it's the truth. In other words, God's concealment is another expression of His infinity. It's equally God in the revealed as it's equally God in the concealed. One of the most poignant Hasidic melodies is called Anna Em Tsa'eka. It's a very powerful, soul-stirring melody. And the words are in Hebrew and Yiddish. It says, where can I find you, master of the world? And where can I not find you? Then it goes in Yiddish, same words. Where can we find you, and where can we not find you? If it's good, it's you. If it's no good, it's also you. And if it's you, it's good. One more time. If it's good, it's you. If it's no good, it's also you. And if it's you, it's good. And then it says, Maila do, Mata do, upwards you, downwards you, eastwards you, westwards you, northwards you, southwards you, it's all you, 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 you. Hmm. Interesting. I think that reaches the point of this very concept. If it's you, if it's good, then it's you. If it's no good, it's also you. And if it's you, then it's good. In other words, everything is another way of bringing out Hashem in the world. The fact of the matter is, it's much easier to observe God when it's revealed. And it's much harder to find Him in the concealed. But He's, he's right there and it's Him talking to you from within the darkness. It's Him talking to you from within the cover-up, from behind the curtain. This, pers- this uh, perspective on the tzimtzum is going to play in a lot in, uh, in chapter 6 when we close the circle. But if that's not enough, the Alter Rebbe adds another concept. And uh, this is the last eight lines of chapter 4. And it continues through all of chapter 5, which I might say was probably one of the most obscure pieces of the Tanya until 1967. It's, it's a bracket. The al opens a brackets, but doesn't close them. And it's been debated where the closure of the brackets should be, either the end of chapter 4 or the end of chapter 5. The Rebbe concludes that it's the end of chapter 5, which means we're entering a brackets now and next week, or two weeks from now, after Pesach. Which is going to bring out an entirely new depth in the Tzimtzum. Two weeks ago, I talked about how Rabbi Weinberg, who would give over those Yiddish Tanya classes on the radio, he would prepare each week a transcript of what he was going to teach. In 1967, they started in 1960. In January of 1967, they were up to the second book. Like in seven years, to get through book one. And uh, he was up to chapters four and five of this second book. And he had written in 
I think it was a Wednesday or a Thursday. That week he was going to teach, that Motzei Shabbat was going to teach the chapter. And uh, he wrote in a series of questions on this end of chapter four and the chapter five, which he didn't understand. It's, it's, you read the book itself, it's just, it's code. And uh, uncharacteristically, the Rebbe would typically edit or write answers to the questions. The Rebbe wrote a note. He said, Yesh uh, arichut. This requires a lengthy address, both in expanding on your questions, which are as strong as iron, the Rebbe said, some iron-clad questions, and in explaining it. So instead of writing it down, the Rebbe said, Bli neder, no promises, I'm going to speak about it on Shabbos. At the Fabrengen of Shabbos, I'm going to address your questions. And indeed, that Shabbat, the Rebbe spent about two hours, one of the longest talks, two hours on this end of chapter four and chapter five of the Tanya. Right after Shabbat, he had to, he had to write it down and give it over on the radio. You understand what he was facing, this challenge. <laughs> but he wrote it up. The Rebbe edited it. Today, just two years ago, they released um, the actual galleys where the Rebbe wrote his corrections on it. You can see it's 20 pages, intense, uh, copious footnotes the Rebbe was adding in and changing because it's very, very subtle. And it was printed later in one of the Rebbe's published talks. And uh, I think the Rebbe really illuminated, opened up this piece of the Tanya. And, and you really can't study it without the Rebbe's talk. So I'm just going to, as I present it, will basically be a paraphrase of my understanding of, uh, of what the Rebbe is saying. Because even after the talk, it's still obscure and, and it's, there's a lot that goes into it. But um, the point which the Alter Rebbe wants to bring out is as follows. There's a uh, debate in Jewish books about the essence of darkness. If darkness is an entity or it's merely the absence of light. Truth is, it's not only a Jewish question. We find in books of old that the scientists, the early philosophers debated this. Today, conventionally, we know that there is no unique physical entity to darkness. It's simply the absence, the absence of light. But in the Torah, we do find reference to darkness as an entity. Firstly, before creation, there was darkness. So that means that darkness is something that exists before light. Secondly, even after light was created in the account of creation on the first day, we see a verse that says, Hashem separated between light and darkness. Now, if darkness is the absence of light, you don't have to separate. The separation connotes that darkness has qualities unto itself. And the way Hasidus explains it is that it's not a physical argument. Physically, scientifically, we know uh, the darkness that we perceive is a lack of light. But since the Torah makes reference to a darkness, a primordial darkness, a pre-creation darkness, that means that on some level, darkness has identity. Darkness has a meaning. Darkness has an interpretation. And uh, it goes like this. We say in these classes, it's come up a lot. There's godliness in everything, right? Everything in the world has a spark of godliness. That's the term we always use, a spark. A spark of godliness, a little light, a pint of the we talk about, you know, the point of the Jew, a little fire inside. It's always described in the terms of a spark or, or, or light. Earlier on in book one, we had a reference to uh, the klipa, right? The shell, 
everything is a husk that's covering over the truth. So if we could just crack open the peel, then we would see, you know, the truth behind everything. The implication of that is that there's no such thing as darkness, as cover-up, as shell, peel, husk, all these things don't actually exist. It's just that they're covering over the godly light. The truth is in the light. It's like uh, if you could peel away the layers, you would see under it and allow it to sprout forth is the light. Kind of like uh, imported godliness or godliness arising from within. There's a core in every object that's the godliness inside of it. Everything else is just fake. But when we talk about darkness having an essence, having an entity, having an identity unto itself, Hasidus says, and the Alter Abel alludes to this in this end of chapter 4, that means that there's more to the story. There's another level where God is not the light within the fakeness around it, but God is the darkness. In other words, there's more to God than light. Even though in Kabbalah, the Arizal, we're always referring to God as his light, his infinite light, the light behind the curtain, behind the screen. There's more to God than that. There's an element where you say, darkness can shine. The, what seems to be the block itself is an entity. So it's not trying to push away the stuff to the side and see, oh, now I have God. It's, this is God. You're looking at God. Similar to the story in the beginning of the class where the Alter Rebbe was able to find Hashem in the shtender. The lectern spoke godliness. You didn't have to bring him from somewhere outside where Hashem is in the realms and you're bringing him down and now you're going to find him inside everything. No, the shtender itself was the godliness. The darkness itself, the cover-up itself, the tzimtzum itself was godly. And what that says about what we have to do with the tzimtzum is revolutionary. Because typically we're used to thinking our mission in this world is to pull away the mask. Hashem put us in a world which is totally devoid of godliness, but all of it is just a illusion. It's just a cover-up. And if we could just peel it all away, now we've done our purpose. But the truth is that the second concept that we need to achieve is where the darkness itself could shine. Where every element of creation itself becomes godly and is a revelation, is an expression of God. You know, when Mashiach comes, um, it's not in the Tanya, but just to bring out the point, there's two verses that describe a godly revelation that will happen when Mashiach comes. One of them we say, actually we say both of them every Shabbat when we take out the Torahs. Uh, one verse says, Ayin ba'ayin yiru. We will see God eye to eye. And the other verse says, 
God's honor will be revealed. All flesh will see. So one says eye to eye, one says the flesh will see. So the Altar Rebbe explains, not here, a different discourse. The eye is a receptacle to light, to seeing things. So if you say the eye will see God, what you're basically meaning is when Mashiach comes, the light will be revealed. And now everybody will be able to perceive it and we'll see eye to eye. Flesh doesn't see. Flesh isn't an eye. Flesh wasn't endowed with the qualities that allow us to see things. And yet we say the flesh will see. The flesh will see means that every part of creation will itself reveal godliness. There's another verse that says, Evan Mikir Tizak, when Mashiach comes, the stones will scream from the walls. A stone has a mouth. Mouths can emit sound. When you say a stone emits sound, what you mean is the stone as it's a stone will express the godliness contained within it and not the godliness within it hiding behind it. The godliness that it is. This concept has many incredible ramifications which are all of chapter 5. Chapter 5 are the ramifications of this concept of Tzimtzum being a darkness which has an entity. But we'll get to that after Pesach. The, the closing message, I guess, of chapter 4 is, if I could say it in other words, you know, one of the greatest thinkers, Rabbi Sadia Gaon, I believe, was the one, was the one who wrote, to, to know God is to be God. All right, if you could know God, you would be Him. If I was him, I would, if I knew him, I would, I would be him. Now, when you say that, it's important to realize that as long as you're in the realm of knowledge, knowing the light, knowing God, all you have to do is to be sensitive to the knowledge. You don't have to be the light. So how can when it comes to God, we say to know God is to be him, but to know his light or his expressions, you don't have to be his light. All you have to be is sensitive. It's because of this same, it's because of this very, very same topic, this very same concept. Light, so long as you're outside the essence of God, is shining and reaches those that are capable of receiving it. As long as you fashion yourself to be capable of receiving it, you will receive it. Many things in the world are covered up, so they can't bounce the light off. Light doesn't require that sense of complete singularity and unity. But in the context of the Tanya, what the Alter Rebbe wants to teach us about God's unity and discovering Him in the world is that we're not just on a mission to discover God. Since the truth of our existence is God, as we learned last week, we're within the source, we're constantly inside Him, so we are God without knowing it. We're not his light, we're his darkness. We're not his light, we're his darkness, but in a way that's deeper. Because the ultimate goal is for the darkness to shine. So when we say that God's creation is about hiding, when we say tzimtzum is the key to understanding the ego of, of, of all of creation, the paradigm that we have to look at it with is not as we would typically hiding the light, covering a self or, or uncovering it for that matter. It's, there is no light. 
we're not dealing in the paradigm of light. What we are dealing with is finding God inside ourselves. Ourselves being the master creation that God made, a darkness being, a being that is Timsun, a being that speaks an alternate version of God's infinity, perhaps even greater than that of the light. To create a world is one thing. To create a world which is dark and that should express God's infinity is a whole other thing. And that's us. And as we're going to uncover further next time and the next time as well, this makes Judaism so rich. It makes a lot of things very rich. But you have to come back for chapter 5 for that. It makes the concept of tzaddikim rich. It makes the concept of Torah study rich. It makes the concept of Gan Eden rich. A lot of good things. Which, without that, if we would just look at Simpson and say, you know what, God, God put, a, put a curtain up, that's it. He's behind it, but this is the curtain. You can reach one level. The other level is to say, God is in the shtender. And not because he's some particle inside it, but because he is his cover. He is his tinsel.